Well, there are a few words that make up a really simple sentence that I just don't like being applied to me. And that is the phrase or the sentence, you should have. You should have. You know that feeling when you know what you're supposed to do and you're going to do it, but you get distracted, other things come along, and the next thing you know, circumstances evolve so that it's too late and you're standing there saying, I should have done this or I should have done that. On uh, December 30th, so the day before New Year's this year, I got a call from my daughter. She was going into Costco, Irvine, and she had her daughter there, my granddaughter, and she was going to buy some salmon and was asking me, like, how long is it going to last in the refrigerator and how long do I prepare it? And then she said, I'll call you back later, and that was that. Well, she called me back later, but she called me back from her husband's phone. So she was at home, she called me on her husband's phone, and she was upset. And she said, when I went to pay at Costco, my phone was gone. I couldn't even pay for my groceries. And I went to customer service at Costco. I told them that my phone was missing. And when I was doing that, there was another guy there at customer service that said his phone was missing too. My phone was stolen. And I was thinking, no, your phone's not stolen. Who's going to steal your phone at Costco Irvine? when you got a little baby right there too. So uh, I have her on Life360, find friends, family sharing, all that stuff. And I was looking at my apps and I could see, yep, she left her house at this time. She got to Costco at this time. She had battery, 33% battery. And after she got to Costco, suddenly her phone was turned off. Well, that's weird. Why would it be turned off with all that battery? About three hours later, we got a notification. Her phone was in Rancho Cucamonga, like 66 miles from where I live. So even though it was late at night, uh, me and my husband and my daughter decided to take a little field trip. <laughs> so we went to where the phone was pinging in Rancho Cucamonga. We got there, we got to this apartment complex, and we decided, you know what, we better call the police first. <laughs> so we called the police, the police came, very nice, and they told us, you know what? So many people come doing the same thing to the same location, the same building in the same apartment complex, but there's nothing that we can do or nothing that you can do without a search warrant. So I'm thinking, let's get that search warrant. I mean, how do we get that thing going? You know, and they kind of laughed, it's not that easy. Well, I was thinking, there's no way we drove all the way here to get this phone and we're going home without a phone. And my daughter was becoming more upset. Now, the reason she was becoming more upset was this really wasn't about the phone. Remember the granddaughter? Every photo, every video, everything was on that phone. Uh, when she was born, her first steps, her first words, her first foods, her first day with her mom at Disneyland, dances that they would do every month, everything was on that phone, and it wasn't backed up to a PC, and it wasn't backed up to the cloud. 
So she's thinking through that, thinking, I have no record of my daughter's life now, and she is 16 months old. It's all on that phone. So I said, let's just wait. So we waited, and a security guard from the apartment complex came. And we said, hey, maybe he'll understand. So we advocated with him, told him, told him about the photos. He said, you know what? I'm going to take you over there. I'll go over there, and I'll help you get your phone back. Yes. So by now, it's after midnight. And he's taking us over there, and it's an interesting apartment complex. When we finally got to the location where the phone was pinging, you looked in the window and literally there were red lights on everywhere in the apartment. Who puts red lights on? You know, that's something that you just hear about in a song, right? Well, red lights everywhere. You could see all sorts of movement, all sorts of stuff going on, and the security guard nicely went to the door and just bang, bang, bang really loud. No answer. Again, you can see movement in the apartment. Ringing on the doorbell, no answer. Uh, he went on to do this again and again, again and again, five times. And my daughter had my phone and it was pinging right there. It was right on the other side of that door. Finally, somebody spoke from behind the door and said, you know, what do you want? And the security guard was looking at us like, I, there's not a lot I can say. And he said, we're looking for a missing phone. And the voice said, it wasn't me. <laughs> and the security guard said, you know what? There is nothing more that I can do. And we just stood there with our hearts dropped. Every photo, every video, the whole record of my granddaughter's little life on that phone, on the other side of that door, and there was nothing we could do. Nothing. And when we talked to the security guard and the police and Costco and the people at Apple support, they all said, you know, you should have had your phone in your backpack. Uh, you, you should have backed it up to a computer. You should have paid that 99 cents for the cloud. Uh, the things that you're going to do and you know you should do and you would tell someone else to do, but you got distracted and you just never got around to doing it and it catches up with you. Well, thinking about our passage today, if we respond rightly to what God says in our passage this week, we can avoid the regret of, I knew what I should have done, but I didn't do it, when it comes to our spiritual life. Uh, when we are faced with things that want to distract us, from Christ and who we are in Christ. So we're going to explore that as we go through this interesting and somewhat tricky passage and try to pull out some key truths here that will impact our lives and again, prevent us from this kind of regret. So let's read it together. Colossians 2, 16 through 23, and then we'll explore the parts. Colossians 2, 16 through 23 says, therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, so going back to the first verse there, verse 16, it begins with the word, therefore. And as it's been said many times from this stage, when you begin a section with therefore, you have to ask what it's there for, right? What is that therefore? And it's there for the thought that began actually in chapter 2, verse 8. So if you look back up at chapter 2, 8, you will see the idea that Paul is beginning here. In 2.8, he began, see to it that no one takes you captive, takes you captive. Uh, The Bauer lexicon, one of the best Greek lexicons, uh, dictionaries that define Greek words, explain the word that's translated as captive here as to gain control of by carrying off as booty, to make captive of or to rob. So Paul's saying here, see to it that no one rips you off or no one robs you. But instead, uh, as he says at the bottom of verse 8, that you are to know who you are according to Christ. You are to know what the scripture says about you according to Christ. And we see that unpacked in verses 13 through 15 who we are in Christ. If you look again at 13 through 15, it says you, you, me, the Colossians, all of us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the passage reminds us that the Colossians, me, you, all of us, by nature, we were dead in our sins. We were dead to God. But when we made that choice, when we heard the good news, the gospel of our salvation, and we put our trust in Christ, and we chose to turn from our sins, at that moment in time, the passage says, we were made alive. Verse 13 says there, we were made alive. If we are in Christ, or because we are in Christ, we are alive. The passage also says that we are completely forgiven, completely forgiven of everything we've ever done, everything we're doing, everything we will do. That is what the gospel teaches us. It says that we are blameless before God, the record of debt that stood against us, the list, the legal demands of the law that we broke before God was dealt with on the cross. 
And it says that he set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. This is not predicated upon what we do, but upon what he did. Therefore, if we are in Christ, we are safe and we are secure because it's all hinged on the work of Jesus and not ourselves. And it also says that we are victorious. We're victorious over the powers of sin and darkness because Jesus was victorious over the power of sin and darkness. So this text was written to Christians, to people who had truly put their trust in Christ and turned from their sins. And the text says, don't let anyone rob you of these truths. Don't let anyone rip this off from you. And then as we transition into 16 to 16, 16 and 17, the beginning of our passage, therefore, because of all this, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the first point for us is we need to believe what God says about us. You need to believe what God says about you. We have to believe that. We've got to hold fast to that. What does God says about us? Because we will come under judgment. And the Colossians were coming under five areas of judgment with regard to food and drink and religious festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And you might say, food, new moon, Sabbath, doesn't the Bible talk about these things? And the answer is yes, it does. Uh, these things are peppered throughout the Old Testament. Uh, these are things that the Old Testament believers did as they were looking forward to the coming of their Messiah, to the coming as, of Christ. We see them, for example, uh, in 1 Chronicles 23, 30, and 31, as David was assembling the Levites, the priests, the religious leaders. Uh, he says in 1 Chronicles 23, 30, and 31, they will were to stand every morning thanking and praising Yahweh. And likewise at evening, and whenever burnt offerings were offered to Yahweh on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days, according to the number required of them regularly before Yahweh. So the food and drink, the new moons, the religious festivals, the Sabbaths, these all pointed Old Testament believers to Christ. But now for the Colossians and for us, Christ has come. These things are now the shadow and Christ is the substance because we now are in Christ and Christ is in us if we have turned from our sins and placed our trust in him. We saw that back in Colossians 1.27. So many of these ideas being developed throughout the first two chapters. Colossians 1.27 says, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a great mystery that now Christ is in us and with us. He is in us and he has transformed us and changed us and we are now different. We now have this relationship with him. Uh, let's say you had a husband who's in the military. And 
He's deployed. He's deployed for a chunk of time, and you and your husband have children together. And you get to talk to your husband every now and then using FaceTime. You use your phone, he uses his phone, and you can talk to each other. And you get your kids, gather them around and say, you know, hey, say hi to daddy, you know, wave to daddy, talk to daddy, or whatever. And you go back and forth, and you can have this relationship through FaceTime. Well, you do this for days and weeks and months, and finally, your husband is able to come back home. And he's back home, and he's in the kitchen together with you and your kids. And the day after he gets back, you gather all the kids around, and you say, you know what? It's time to call daddy on FaceTime. He's right there with you in the kitchen. Why would you call him on FaceTime? Even though that's what you did for days and weeks and months, you don't need to do it any longer because you don't need to rely on the shadow when the substance is there. You don't need to rely on the FaceTime when the person is there. And that's what the text is teaching. Colossians 2.17, if you look at it again, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They had Christ with them and in them as we do. We no longer need those ceremonial practices to gain access to God. And we see this truth in the book of Hebrews. Uh, for example, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews verse 5. Hebrews chapter 10 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form, instead of the substance of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. God is perfect. We aren't perfect. The sacrifices, the ceremonial law did not have the ability to make us perfect to provide that relationship with us and with God. And then verse five says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. We know that Christ was the ultimate and final sacrifice that he made up for on the cross, everything that those ceremonial laws pointed to. And now if we are in Christ, all that Old Testament ceremonial law is fulfilled. And Jesus does make perfect those who put their trust in him and turn from their sins. And there is no need for these food and festival laws anymore. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yes, I, I see what you're saying. I got that. I understand the difference between the old and the new covenant. But doesn't it say in the New Testament that we aren't to be a stumbling block to anyone, that we're not to stumble our brothers and sisters? Uh, what if what if by not neglecting the food and the drink, we're stumbling our brothers and sisters. Or what if by not participating in those religious festivals, we're stumbling people? Shouldn't we then forsake the food and the drink or shouldn't we participate in the festivals in order not to stumble our brothers and sisters? Well, that's a great question. 
That's a great question because yes, the New Testament does address this principle. We see the principle taught by the same author, Paul, to the church at Rome and to the church at Corinth. Uh, for example, to the church at Rome, Paul says in Romans 14, 13, uh, it says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So we are never to stumble or hinder the spiritual walk of a brother or sister in Christ. And then uh, in even more detail, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul unpacks this further. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul was dealing with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. There were all sorts of idols in Corinth, and meat was sacrificed to the idols, and the believers were wondering, can we eat that meat or not? And Paul was saying, sure, you can eat it. There's no such thing as an idol. We're in Christ, forget the idols. But it bothered the consciences of some that the meat was being sacrificed to idols. So if we look at verses 10 through 13... Paul says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, emboldened, if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ." Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So there were two separate things going on here. Uh, in the churches of Rome and Corinth, what we had was the strong with their knowledge, their identity of who they were in Christ, stumbling the weaker Christians. And so they chose to voluntarily, out of love, limit their liberties for the sake of the consciences of the weaker Christians. But in Colossians, we're not talking about strong and weak Christians here. We're talking about wrong people, people who were wrong, imposing their ways upon the strong and the weak, people who were absolutely wrong about the gospel, saying that these things are mandatory for someone to be right with God through Christ. And they were being judged, they were being condemned, they were being ripped off regarding the gospel and who they were in Jesus. Uh, R.C. Sproul, if you've heard of him before, I love listening to him. He's got such a gift for taking complex spiritual truths and making them easy to understand. Uh, he uh, talks about this. He says that there was a church that he was pastoring, and in the church there formed a bridge club, a bridge, a card-playing club. And there was a woman in the church who said, I don't think that the church should have a bridge club, a card playing club. I'm stumbled by that. I want R.C., the pastor, to shut it down. And so he thought about it, and he said, you know what, if she's truly stumbled by this, then sure, we'll shut it down. And so he was going to meet with her, and when he was going to meet with her to tell her this, he found out that no, she wasn't stumbled by this. But her theology was wrong. She said that you can't be a Christian and play bridge. You can't be saved and play cards. So you know what R.C. said he did? He joined the bridge club. 
<laughs> and that's what's going on here. This isn't something that's stumbling the conscience of a weak Christian. These are people who are wrong about what the gospel teaches, trying to impose regulations, ceremonial laws upon people who are complete in Christ. Thinking back to Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus is God in the flesh. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And it says, And you, meaning the Colossians, and you and me, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We are full. We are filled. There is nothing more we can add to that. And that's why the text says, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one rip you off regarding food and drink and ceremonial laws. And you know, uh, often it's not others who are ripping us off in this area. But often it's ourselves who really rip us off from the truth about who we are in Christ. Uh, I know I've talked to many women. I know I've felt this myself when you're in church on the weekend and you hear a heavy, hard-hitting sermon from the text and you feel challenged and you walk out and you just feel tempted to break down and say, this is so hard. Maybe I'm not even saved. What? You've placed your trust in Christ, you've turned from your sins, you're living the Christian life, and you're challenged with the scripture. And then you're just going to say, maybe I'm not even saved? No. Uh, be challenged. Put the challenge into action and grow from that. Or, you know, maybe you fall, you fail, you stumble, you sin, and you get up again, and then you fall and you stumble and you sin and you get up again and then you stumble and sin and you get up again and you get tired of it and you say, I, I sinned again. Maybe I'm just not a Christian, but I've truly put my trust in Christ. And I've truly turned from my sins. I know I have, but why would I keep falling and stumbling and sinning? Because that's the Christian life, right? When you fall and stumble and sin, repent Confess your sin to God. Get up and get back in the game. That's what we all have to do. Or maybe it's when we're just looking at other women, other Christian friends, and we find out that she's reading 10 chapters a day. 10 chapters a day? I've never read 10 chapters in my life. Or maybe she's praying for 60 minutes every morning. She sets her alarm for 3.45 and prays for 60 minutes. And, you know, you're like in the twilight zone at 3.45. Even if you got up, you wouldn't know what to do. And so you start thinking, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not even saved. But you know you've put your trust in Christ. You know you've turned from your sins. We got to stop. We got to stop forgetting, not believing who, what God says about us and who we are if we are in Christ. Because Satan is crafty, and if he can't have us, if we are truly believers and he can't have us, he wants to rip us off by making us feel condemned or judged about things that we shouldn't feel condemned or judged about and make us feel unuseful. 
Because we'll sit there and pout and have pity parties and do morbid introspection and not do as Christ has called us to do. I know you know this stuff. I bet you've told other people these things. But you know what? That time comes when we begin to doubt for ourselves, And we've got to back this truth up. We've got to upload it to the cloud. Whatever it is, we've got to keep it near to us. We've got to believe what God says about us. Because there will be times that we feel that we're not having the experiences or the feelings or the emotions that should be associated with Christianity. And we see that in the next couple of verses. Let's look back at Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Colossians 2, 18 and 19 says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Now, scholars have said uh, these two verses, particularly Colossians 2.18, is the most difficult verse in the whole book, the most difficult text in all of Colossians. And some scholars have said that these are among the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. Uh, There's a book called The Colossian Syncretism, written by Clint Arnold, 378 pages that I read just on these two verses, really unpacking these two verses. So there is a lot going on here. But we're going to try to simplify, get a big picture view, and see what we can get out of this. Uh, We have to remember that Colossians 2.8 began this whole line of logic, the whole argument. Remember, see to it that no one takes you captive, that no one robs you or rips you off with false teaching, with false doctrine. Uh, Verse 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one condemn you. Let no one cheat you. And then now, 2.18, let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one say, you aren't having the same ecstatic experiences that I am or that we are. So God is not with you the same way that he's with us or with me. Second fill-in here is we've got to trust. We've got to trust that God is with us. Trust that God is with you. That uh, Greek word that's translated as disqualified there, the Bauer lexicon, uh, says that the Greek word means to decide against as an umpire. Uh, So an umpire will say safe or out. So someone deciding against you saying you're out And so the lexicon says, and so rob you of a prize. Again, being ripped off, being ripped off of what you should have, the knowledge, the trust that God is with you, being ripped off of that because someone's saying, well, if you're not having these experiences or these feelings, how do you know that he's really with you? And they insist on, the text says, asceticism, which is severe discipline of the body, Uh, worship of angels, and visions, things that they quote-unquote see. 
So we saw first it was food and festivals, very Jewish things, uh, but the church was made up of primarily Gentiles. And what we see here is what's called syncretism. It's the merging of different uh, religious belief systems. There was a little bit of paganism. It was the Gentile uh, worship of idols from that region mixed together with Judaism, mixed together with a form of Christianity. And that's called syncretism. And if you're someone who's doing that, I'll pick a little of this religion and a little of that religion and a little of this religion. Just know that if you're doing that, you believe yourself and not God. Because you're the one who has the authority to say, oh, well, I'll take this part of this religion and this part of this one and this part of this one because it's what I like. You like it because you've put yourself in the place of God. And that's what was going on here. We see this, uh, we see this in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16. Acts 19, 13 through 16, it says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, uh, these were Jewish exorcists who had mixed together all sorts of different religion. They were itinerant. They were traveling around. And this was taking place uh, near Ephesus, in Ephesus, which was very close to Colossae, to our book. So some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You see, often when we think of New Testament Judaism, we think of the Pharisees. We think of the people that Jesus was dealing with, very legalistic, very living by the law. But uh, from Jerusalem to Colossae was about a thousand mile drive. I mean, it would take 20, 20 hours just to drive there. So you're out in a different region now, and you've got what call, scholars call folk Judaism. Again, this hybrid with a pagan religion and Jewish religion and even forms of Christianity here. Now, uh, Sceva could have been part of the people who were teaching the Colossians these false truths. But again, uh, this is not biblical Christianity. And archaeologists have also discovered all sorts of things that look at these uh, worship of angels within these religious cults. They've found uh, manuscripts, they've found inscriptions, they've found amulets, little uh, religious charms that have the names of angels on there that are to protect the wearer from evil forces. And, you know, Sceva and his sons were calling upon these angelic beings invoking the names of these angels to gain power over demons. They were probably calling upon, uh, scholars say, Michael and Gabriel, these known Jewish angels, as well as others, trying again to get power over the evil forces. And they wanted to add the name of Jesus to the list too. 
there's an old document, and they say that parts of it were certainly written before the New Testament, uh, called the Testament of Solomon. It's not a biblical document. It's called Pseudepigrapha. It's a religious document that's written around the time of the writing of the Bible, but it's not biblical. And there's a, a guy that they say is named Solomon, and he has a conversation where he interrogates demons. And in one place, he interrogates 36 demons, it says, and they reveal themselves to be the stoichia. Well, that's interesting because back in Colossians 2, 8, where we began the argument with see to it that no one takes you captive, no one rips you off, it says at the bottom of the verse, according to the elemental spirits of the world, in the Greek, according to the stoichia. So there were these people that were saying they had these powers, these connections with angelic forces. They had visions. They had all these things going on and these wretched little Colossians. They didn't have any of that. They only had Christ. Well, they would also advocate for things like extreme fasting. You would fast and fast so that you would get these visions and you would be able to gain power over the unseen realm. And they claimed all of the spiritual superiority, again, over these quote-unquote experienceless Colossian believers. I mean, you Colossians, how do you know that God's even with you? What experiences have you had? You've had nothing like what we've had. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, no way. He says, you know what? These people, they're not even right with God themselves. The text goes on to say that they are spiritually headless. They've been cut off from the head. You don't have a head, you're dead. You're nothing. They were lacking spiritual life, and they're trying to impose these things upon the Colossian believers. Look back at 18 and 19. At the end of 2.18 in our passage, it says these people are puffed up. They're puffed up without reason and not holding fast to the head. These people are not in Christ. And if you are in Christ, whether or not you have an experience, it goes on to say that the body will grow because you are in Christ. Christ alone is your answer. That's what Paul's teaching here. If you are in Christ, if you've placed your trust in him and turned from your sins, he is with you, regardless of the feelings or the experiences that you have. And we might hear today of others that claim to have all sorts of spiritual experiences, visions, connections with angels, amulets, uh, crystals, whatever it is. And Paul would say, God would say, no, that's cut off from the head. That is not what we look for. And we live in a culture that's very focused on experiences and feelings and emotions, always looking for those fireworks. Uh, even when you turn on the radio, you turn on the TV, you watch a movie, the romance, the relationships, there's always that intensity, that feeling, that emotion, the fireworks. And we start thinking that we should experience that in our walk with Christ. And the text is saying that's not the walk with Christ. We're called instead to live by faith. The Bible says we live by faith. And that doesn't mean, you know, oh, we're crossing our fingers hoping there's a God. No, we know there's a God. 
It's evident that there is God. We know we're broken sinners. We know we failed his holy standard. We know that our only provision is Christ, God who took on human flesh and made provision for our sin on the cross. We know that, but we're called to live by faith as we walk through life day in and day out, and we often feel emotionless or feelingless, or we don't have the great experiences. As 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not emotion. We walk by faith and not feeling. We walk by faith and not experience. I remember years ago uh, going to a friend's house who was sick. She had some problem with her stomach. She was feeling terrible. She was bedridden and she was feeling really sick. And she called one of these quote unquote Christian hotlines for prayer. And as she was asking for prayer, they asked her to describe what was going on. And she was talking about a pain within her stomach, a, a burning sensation within her stomach. And the person on the other end of the line gasped, oh, the burning in your stomach, that's the Holy Spirit of God. That's God's Holy Spirit within you. She was so elated and excited as she told us she knows that God is with her now. Well, guess what happened when she got better? The burning went away. And so did the Holy Spirit. And she was horrified. She thought the Holy Spirit had left her, truly. And that's what happens when we live in this fireworks mentality, this culture of we always have to have a feeling. We want that feeling, that first love, that initial feeling. We don't want that mature love, the love with meaning and commitment and devotion and choice. And you might be saying, well, you said first love. First love, first love. I know the Bible says something about first love and we should have first love. You're right, it does. Uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus found in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2, 4 through 5. Uh, this is a rebuke against them from God. It says, I have this against you in Revelation 2, 4 and 5, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yes, this text says you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. It doesn't say you've abandoned your first feeling or you've abandoned your first experience. You've abandoned your commitment your love, your commitment. Go back and do what you did at first. Go back and do what you know you're supposed to do, even without the feeling, even without the emotion, even without the experience. Uh, just think if God were to show up and talk to you later today and tell you, you know what? For the rest of your Christian life, for the rest of your time on this earth, you're never going to really feel like being obedient. What would you do? Would you say, well, then I'm never going to be obedient? Of course not. You're going to do what the scripture says regardless, and that's what we're called to do. Uh, Romans 13, 14. I love the charge of Romans 13, 14. Romans 13, 14 says, but... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. I remember listening to one of my spiritual heroes, Elizabeth Elliot, speaking about this verse many decades ago. And she said, you know what? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's just that. Sometimes it's a put on. You might not feel like it. You might not have the emotions there, but you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might think, well, uh, but we want to be authentic. We want to be real. We don't want to be fake. Who says that's being fake? It's not being fake. You know what you're supposed to do, and you're making the choice to do it regardless of your emotions. If you need to type that out and hang it up somewhere, great. But that doesn't mean you're being inauthentic or fake. It means that you are saying, this is what I know I need to do. I need to choose to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh because Jesus is with me, because Jesus has promised me again and again in the New Testament that if I've placed my trust in him and turned from my sins, he is with me regardless of if I feel it or not. No matter how we feel, if we know that we've believed in Christ alone, we know that God is with us. We know that. And I bet you've told other people that too. I bet when you've talked to fellow Christians, you've told them, you know what, no matter how you feel, you know that God is with you. But then our time comes when we're challenged in that area, when we're distracted, when something is tempting us to be robbed of that truth, and we suddenly forget it all. And we've got to know this. We've got to trust that God is with us. We got to back that truth up, upload it to the cloud, whatever it is. God is with his people. He is with us regardless of how we feel. He's with us. He's committed to us. And he has freed us to live for him. And we see that in the last three verses, verses 20 through 23. It says, if with Christ you died, if with Christ you died, or since with Christ you died, since you are a Christian, if you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but, key here, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This last uh, thought packet here, beginning in verse 20, begins with the fact that if you are in Christ, you have died with Christ. That is a New Testament principle, and that's a principle that we have already seen in the book of Colossians, and we will continue to see throughout the book. Uh, If you look back at verses 11 and 12, 11 and 12 of chapter 2 there in Colossians, just right before this, says, in him, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. There was a spiritual cleansing that took place by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then it goes on in verse 12. Having been buried with him, 
You died with him. You were buried together with him in baptism. When you were immersed in Christ, when you place your trust in Christ, you are fully in Christ in which you were also raised with him, resurrected with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The passage teaching us that if we are in Christ or because we are in Christ, we are positionally identified with Jesus and not ourselves. We died together with him, and we were raised up again to new life with him, and we can live with him. We can let him live through us. And that's our third and final point, is let Christ live through you. Let Jesus live through you. Now looking back at verse 21, Colossians 2, 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't, don't even taste the food, don't handle the food, don't touch the food, these things that are destined to perish. No, that's not going to make you right with God. Even Jesus said that in Mark 7, 15. Mark 7, 15, Jesus himself said, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus saying, God is looking at the heart. He's not looking at what you're eating. He's looking at the heart. And if we look again at 2.23, it says these things, these uh, self-disciplinary practices, they have an appearance of wisdom promoting self-made religion, asceticism, that severe discipline to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are useless. These man-made rules didn't change the heart. In fact, the reverse was true. These uh, religious acts that they were trying to oppose upon these Colossians, they puffed up the flesh. They fed the flesh rather than rewiring the person from the inside out. And that's what happens to us when we are in Christ. If you don't know this verse, you got to write this one down and read it again later. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, these three verses. Uh, this is a promise to God's people about what will happen in this new covenant, in this time when people are in Christ, like the Colossians and like us. It says, uh, God saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We're not trying to be right with God from the outside in, but far better. Jesus makes us right with God from the inside out. And that's what the scripture teaches here. We have died with Christ. We've died to this life. And when we think of death, like, ooh, death, that's a bad thing. This is not a bad thing here. Death means a separation from. We're separated from our life, from our bondage to sin, We've died together with Christ. We're raised in newness of life. We're free now. We're free to let him live through us. 
we're no longer in bondage to ourselves and to our sin. And this is freedom. And that's why Romans 6, 7 says, Romans 6, 7, this would be a great one to memorize this week. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You've died. You're severed from. You are set free from sin. And you can now live for Christ. This whole do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. We see this in Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Uh, It's recorded in Luke 18. This rich young ruler who came to Jesus saying, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus saying, hey, well, uh, have you kept the Ten Commandments? I mean, we would think the natural response would be no. I mean, how could anybody never lie, uh, never steal, never covet? And the rich young ruler says, yeah, I've done all of that since I was born. And Jesus says, huh, in Luke 18, 22, well, one thing you still lack, see all that you have, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And you know what happened? Rich young ruler was sad. He's like, well, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want this rewiring from the inside out. I don't want to be dead to myself and alive to you and follow you. And we can encounter the same thing when we communicate the gospel, the great truths of the gospel to our friends and even family members. And they say, I don't understand. What do you mean put your trust in Christ and turn from your sin? That's so complicated. That's just too hard for me. Can't you just give me a list of what to do? How many minutes do I need to read the Bible for? How many minutes do I need to pray for? Give me a list. Like you can't do this and you have to do this. Just give me a list. And then I can check the list off and go and live my life. That's not biblical Christianity. You don't check a list off and then go and live your own life. No, you don't want to live your life. Christ has given you his life. He's taken your sins. He's given you his righteousness but you got to give him your life in exchange. You die together with him. You're resurrected from the grave. You live with Christ every day, every hour, every moment you let Christ live through you. We see that in Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20, Paul saying here, I have been crucified with Christ. He died with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul saying, yes, the natural response of the Christian, I've died together with Christ. I've been resurrected with Christ. I have new life now in Christ. It's funny because just the other day, my daughter said to me, remember when we were growing up? You used to always say to us, I'm not trying to cheat you out of a good time. I thought, yeah, I did. I always said that. And I would also say, you know, God's not trying to cheat you out of a good time. God's not trying to rip you off. And we've got to remember that as we think of who we are, as we think of the fact that we've died, we've been severed from our relationship with sin and self, and we're now free to let Christ live through us. This is not God trying to rip us off. He's not trying to say, okay, now I want to strip you of all the fun and I want Christ to live through you. No, not at all. God knows that letting Christ live through us is the 
best way that any of us could possibly live. It's where there's freedom and hope and joy. It's the life that we were created to live. Besides, if you were dead, let's say you are dead, you've died, you've died with Christ if a dead body was up here, dead body is not going to care too much if it gets its wallet ripped off or its phone ripped off, right? Because you're dead. Your mind, your interests are on something very different. Well, speaking of getting ripped off, it wasn't just my daughter. I actually got ripped off last weekend too. I was looking at my bank account on Saturday and I suddenly saw these gigantic charges coming through. So I found my husband who was at home and said, do you know anything about this? And he was like, absolutely not. So I called the bank and I said that my credit card had been stolen and they canceled the card. But we decided to contact the store that these charges went through and after doing some phone conversation, discovered that someone had taken my credit card placed online orders, and then went for a store pickup. So they placed online orders, and then they went to pick up the merchandise, $2,500, $3,000 worth of stuff, to go pick them up and take off with those things. And I felt, wow, I felt ripped off. I mean, you start thinking, like, what other cards of mine do they have? What other information of mine do they have? What else is going to be ripped off? And we made a police report, and the police came over, and the guy said, no, it's not that there's anything you should have done. It's not that you've done anything wrong here. But I had to think, you know, I'm not looking at what I should have done, but I need to put into practice what I know to be true right now. Because I was tempted to just sit on that phone all day, checking every account, fishing around, digging around, trying to do more and more investigation, trying to figure out what had happened. I needed to respond to God rightly. I need to say, you know what? I got to believe what God says about me. Even though the world might try to rip me off and will try to rip me off, God will never rip me off. I am in Christ. I've been made perfect. And God is with me, even though I don't feel like it right now. Even though I don't feel like I'm having a great experience or have these feelings of joy and elation, I was feeling frustrated and bummed. But God is with me. He's in control. He knows what's going on. And I need to choose to let Christ live through me. I've got to say, you know what? I can only spend so much time thinking about this. I've done what I need to do. I can do what I need to do. But I can't be consumed by this. Jesus wouldn't be consumed by this. There's no way Christ wouldn't be consumed by this because he had far better things to do. And you know what? So do I, and so do you. And we're going to see so many of those far better things as we continue the next chapter of our book. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this interesting text, uh, this tricky but very challenging part of Scripture where Paul goes to great lengths to remind us through your spirit of who we are, the fact that you are with us, and the fact that we really are called to let Jesus live through us. 
God, we know that all of these things are predicated upon your work and what your word says and not our experience and our emotions, Lord. God, we know that these things are true for the Christian. And I pray, God, if there's any woman here today who hasn't truly put her trust in you and you alone and chosen to turn from a life of sin and self to following after you, I pray that you would give her the faith and the courage to do so right now. Just like backing up that data, just like uploading to the cloud, it only takes a moment of time to say, you know what, I am going to follow Jesus. I pray, God, that we would all do that even more so today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.